Hey everyone, want to learn how you can become more original? Too bad, that was my idea. Today's book is Originals by Adam Grant, about how to be more original and creative in your work. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comedian, a father, and when I was a kid, I thought I came up with the idea of drawing funny comics and selling them to people on a weekly basis, and then someone showed me a newspaper. <laughs> And I'm David Vance. I, too, as a child, had a passion for comics until I was introduced to Garfield. <laughs> in Originals, researcher Adam Grant looks at creative geniuses like Mozart, Einstein, Marie Curie, and asks, what if instead I just wrote about Warby Parker? And so he does for like half the book. And this is the book pile. Okay, so before we start, I actually want to give a little apology. So a couple weeks ago, I said that if you rate and review the book pile, you go to what is called Better Heaven. Uh, and I'm realizing I probably shouldn't have said that, so I apologize. Uh, it turns out just a rating will get you into better heaven. If you rate and <laughs> review the book pile, you go to what's called premium heaven. So there's no ads, there's a family deal, and it does have the office and friends. <laughs> and without further ado, here are our favorite lessons from originals. Lesson one, birth order may determine a lot about your personality. So these researchers did a study. They looked at 400 pairs of brothers who both played professional baseball. And specifically, they looked at base stealing, which in baseball is a very risky move because it's against the rules to do something interesting. And they found that despite <laughs> the risk of base stealing, younger brothers were 10 times more likely to steal bases. When you step back, you see this broad pattern a lot where, in general, oldest siblings are more conformist, youngest siblings are more risk-seeking. And that's kind of fascinating to me because I'm the oldest of 10 kids, so I can't wait till Seth has his own meth empire. Um, but the broad findings there, oldest kids have higher starting salaries, they have higher test scores, they're more likely to win elections, more likely to become CEO. Youngest kids are more likely to drink, to smoke, to not have retirement savings, but their salaries catch up over time because they're more likely to quit their job for a better job. Youngest kids are also more likely to embrace new scientific ideas like uh, Newton's theories and Einstein's theories when they were still radical. And there's not a lot of research on middle children, which is hilariously on brand. <laughs> I love that you cited a study that said that the youngest child is the least likely to have anything safe for retirement, because if that's true, I can show you another study that says that 80% of Americans must be the youngest child. Is <laughs> the youngest child. Yeah, that, how does that math work out? Oh, and even though there's not like research on middle kids, one of these researchers suggests that middle children seem to be better diplomats, maybe because they have to kind of negotiate between high status and low status kids. And my uncle Dan is a middle kid of 17 kids, and he went into politics, and he says being the middle child is what made him, like, a great negotiator. I have a friend who is a middle child, and he is an actual U.S. diplomat. Wow. Wait, in what country? You can tell how good a diplomat you are based on how important of a country they give you. Uh, Croatia? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's the farm league. Uh, he's in the United Arab Emirates. He lives in Abu Dhabi. I don't know if I'm supposed to say any of that. Wait. Well, I guess the diplomats aren't secret. Yeah. <laughs> I think if he's there in secret, he's not a diplomat. If you are a diplomat and the other government doesn't know you're there, you are not diplomating very well. <laughs> he hides behind fake plants in the offices of various governments, and he just whispers encouraging things about neighboring countries. <laughs> On the birth order subject, uh, again, I'm the oldest of 10 kids, 
And I haven't quite noticed that pattern of like oldest kids being conformist and younger kids being rebellious. But there is a really interesting pattern in the birth order in our family. Basically, all the odds are very like hard charging and kind of loud and they want their way and they have kind of shorter fuses. Like anytime there's a fight in the family, one of the odds is involved. And all the evens are like very chill and they're the peacemakers and easygoing and they like never start the fights. And it's the trend is so pronounced to the point that there's kind of sprung up this rivalry where uh, (laughs) we odds wrote a poem to chant that goes, odds are gods. Evens can't even. They are weak, like Jonathan Steven, who's the brother right after me. (laughs) I know Johnny. And we wrote that poem a year ago. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's really interesting because Star Trek fans will say that the worst Star Trek movies are the odd-numbered ones, so it's like a direct correlation. Huh. (laughs) Wait, what are you saying? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Lesson two. Start from an unfamiliar place. So, Dave, what was your favorite Disney movie growing up? One of maybe a couple. That's lame. Mine was (laughs) The Lion King. In the early 90s, a small group of screenwriters at Disney got together with the idea to create an original script, which the rest of Disney was against, which is crazy. Probably no other brand in history has been more known for storytelling. I guess just not original stories. (laughs) So they wanted to write a story from scratch. They knew they wanted the movie to be about just animals. And they were experimenting away from just reviving old fairy tales. So they wrote a treatment of the story and pitched it to the Disney executives as... Bambi, but in Africa. (laughs) Because you know how all children love Bambi? (laughs) You know that story where his mother dies and his dad doesn't talk to him? (laughs) That classic? So is the follow-up just that the hunter follows him to Africa? (laughs) (laughs) Just makes his life a living deer hell? Well, I have this theory that a lot of old movies that are considered classics are only considered classics because there weren't that many other choices. (laughs) So, the executives are skeptical, including Michael Eisner, who was just trying to wrap his head around something original (laughs) and asked if they could make the story King Lear. Ah, yes, the beloved children's classic, (laughs) King Lear. I don't want to dress up as Elsa this year. (laughs) So they brainstormed and found that the play that better fit the direction of their current story was actually Hamlet. And once they landed on that, it became easier to flesh out the rest of a fulfilling story. And you can see they both have similar plot points. The uncle kills the king. The son avenges his father. There's an elephant graveyard. Everything from Shakespeare. (laughs) So Adam Grant approached Justin Berg, a professor who researches creativity and innovation at Stanford University. 
which I believe is a small community college just south of San Francisco. <laughs> Grant relayed this Lion King story to Berg, who said that it's important to note that the originality of the Lion King came from the fact that they already had a story in place and were later influenced by Hamlet. But had it been the other way around, had they only started with Hamlet and then decided to plug animals into that story, it would have come off as a Hamlet knockoff, which means no Hakuna Matata. <laughs> So the basic idea there is that they started with something new and tried to make it familiar rather than starting with something familiar and trying to make it new. So Justin Berg conducted this experiment where he gave a three-ring binder to a group of college students and asked them to create a new product, something original, something that would help people during job interviews, even though they were college students, which means that after graduation, only 30% of them would get job interviews anyway. <laughs> so they were to use the three-ring binder as their initial reference point. And ultimately, the individuals all came up with pretty conventional products, most of them being like some type of folder with little pouches for business cards and resumes. But then he gave another group the same assignment, and their reference point was a pair of rollerblades. And their products ended up being graded on the whole as 37% higher in originality than the first group. <laughs> also... Doesn't it seem like having an originality score? Doesn't that seem a little oxymoronic? <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the inventions was a pen that you could hold and it would like periodically signal to you how much time had gone by with tiny wheels on the surface, which were inspired from the rollerblades, which would enable you to avoid an awkward glance at like a clock or a watch during an important conversation. Also, I really hope that another one of the students just came up with the idea of business rollerblades. <laughs> The approach kind of reminds me of the designer Raymond Lowy, whose mantra was most advanced yet acceptable. And the basic idea was, he says, the public loves things that are different enough to be interesting and familiar enough that they're not jarring or like disconcerting. And so it, it seems like this approach can get you to a place that kind of threads that needle well. It seems like it, doesn't it, Dave? <laughs> So I'm going to play a clip of a joke of mine that was so original and so successful. It was on Conan. <laughs> and the way that it came to be is a great example, like the ones we just heard, of when two seemingly unrelated things come together to turn into something that made me a lot of money. So <laughs> I used to have this joke where I would take this sort of long-winded approach on purpose to explain that I'd once read that human skin, our skin is so sensitive, we can feel the weight of a bee's wing, which is like one ten-thousandth of an ounce. But how could that be true? Because I've also walked around all day without knowing I had another pair of my underpants in my pant leg. And then I had another joke that I would tell much later in the act, which I won't tell here, but it was another idea with much too long of a setup where I essentially extolled the virtues of self-driving cars. So one day while, while I was writing, I realized that I, I could cut most of the fat from both of these unrelated jokes by combining them. And it turned into something fresh and new and, and weird, and it would become my opening 30 seconds that landed me on Conan, which I don't think I've mentioned yet. So here's <laughs> that joke as heard on Conan on TBS. Yesterday, I went the entire day without realizing I had another pair of my underwear in my pant leg. 
And now I realize I'm completely okay with the idea of self-driving cars. If I couldn't detect half a pound of cotton slithering around my legs, pretty sure a Tesla's gonna know to hit the brakes before I will. My reaction time was nine hours. <laughs> oh, classic me. <laughs> okay, lesson three. You don't know which of your ideas are good, so just make a lot of stuff. So the psychologist named Aaron Cosbelt studied letters from Beethoven, where Beethoven is predicting which of his compositions are best. And it turns out Beethoven is just totally wrong. He didn't know which of his songs would become hits, which, to be fair, he never heard the songs. <laughs> so he had lots of songs he didn't like that became huge hits. He had even more that he loved that were kind of flops. And the conclusion was Beethoven didn't know what his best stuff was. He just made a lot of stuff and some of it was really good, which is how my parents make children. <laughs> so you, you kind of see something similar play with Shakespeare, where he made a ton of plays and some of them were really good, but often the best plays came out at about the same time as the worst ones. So in the same five years that he made Macbeth, King Lear, Othello, he also made Timon of Athens and All's Well That Ends Well, which are two of his all-time worst and also, I kind of wish I'd been alive then so I could just go to those plays and be like, well, he's no Shakespeare. <laughs> anyway, there's the study by Albert Laszlo Barabasi where he essentially finds, on average, every single thing you create early in your career, late in your career, on average, everything you create has about the same chance of being your greatest work. And the reason people tend to do their best work young, he says, is that's when they're making the most stuff. So my parents, you know, they made their best kids young, but also they were way more prolific back then. They were putting out like a kid a year. Anyway, <laughs> so Linus Pauling, he won two Nobel Prizes, and someone once asked him, how do you have good ideas? And he said, you have a lot of ideas, and then you throw away the bad ones. Along with this, I would also add, never go with your first idea. Okay. Which I guess <laughs> undermines my <laughs> point about the kids. <laughs> So I do this with comedy, but you can do it with speeches, marketing ideas. Even when I think I've found a punchline, I'll force myself to brainstorm at least 10 more ideas. So I find that I often get so excited about an initial idea that I first think it's the best possible one. Why even bother mm. trying to come up with more? But I'll often find that w when I'm doing that brainstorming, that, that it's like the seventh or eighth idea turns out to be even better. The exception to this rule is M. Night Shyamalan, where his first idea was the only good one. <laughs> On the subject of your first idea is rarely the best one, apparently in the writer's room of the Dick Van Dyke show, if two writers ever came up with the same joke at the same time, they couldn't use it because they thought that it was too obvious. So on that point, if you were to ask the average non-classical music enthusiast to name some classical composers, I bet anyone could name or at least recognize the names of Mozart, Beethoven, Bach. And it's not just because those guys were quote-unquote gifted, it's because they wrote so much and, as you explained, increase their chances of churning out hits. So, for example, Robart... R Robart? <laughs> I, I guess that's uh, all three of them put together. Robart I, is like the Roomba that composes songs. <laughs> Robart, the boring vacuum. So, Mozart, during his lifetime, wrote over 600 pieces Beethoven hit 650. Wow. And Bach wrote a thousand. 
And it was exactly 1,000. <laughs> he was that OCD. Not another step. <laughs> so the broad takeaway for me is you don't know ahead of time what your good stuff is. Just do your best to make a lot, and hopefully there will be good stuff in that volume. All right, lesson four. Sometimes originals make decisions based on identity, not potential consequences. So Dave, you were talking earlier about stealing bases, which is pretty common, but stealing home is extremely difficult and extremely rare. <laughs> Unless you are Wells Fargo. <laughs> Unless you have an apparatus for falsely robo-signing thousands of foreclosure documents. You're right. Stealing home is difficult. <laughs> I always feel like when I'm logging into a website, if I can't remember my password, that's the proof that I'm not a robot. <laughs> so stealing home is rare because third base is 90 feet from home, but the pitcher's mound is only 60 feet. The ball is going 95 miles an hour, and most people can't run that fast. <laughs> That's why it's so hard. So Ricky Henderson holds the record. He stole over a 1,000 bases, but of all of those, he only stole home four times. On the other hand, during Jackie Robinson's career, he stole just 197 bases, but he stole home 19 times. Wow. So Adam Grant makes this correlation. Adam Grant is named like a forgettable action book protagonist. <laughs> the two first names. Into the room walked Adam Grant. <laughs> He's white. Usually, like, if a last name comes from a first name, they'll make it a plural, like Stevens or Peters. <laughs> Adam Grant's. <laughs> I think to pull off a last name as vanilla as Grant, you need a real behemoth of a first name like Ulysses, <laughs> said David Vance. <laughs> See, Vance Davids would make sense. So he makes this correlation that Jackie Robinson, he wasn't just stealing home for his own statistics. He was also doing it because stealing home is a massive morale boost for the team. And he was boosting morale because of the icon he knew that he was representing. Do you remember the, the story of Jackie Robinson in the 1955 World Series? Basic idea is Jackie Robinson is toward the end of his career. They're in the World Series, and they're trailing in game one. And he steals home, which, again, as Kellen was saying, is this massive risk. They end up still losing that game, but the author cites that moment as such a morale booster that it kind of acted as the fulcrum that sort of swung the momentum of the entire series. Oh, and they ended up winning the World Series, in case that wasn't clear. And that was the one 10-second spin in history when baseball wasn't boring. <laughs> so Adam Grant makes this argument that Jackie Robinson made these crazy, risky, but heavily rewarding decisions, not based on the fear of the potential consequence, in his case, getting tagged out, but based on what he represented. In other words, he made a choice not based on what could happen to me, but on what would a person like me do, a person with my ultimate responsibility, do in this situation. I should preface this by saying that I don't know if I fully buy this argument, because I, I don't know how you prove this argument. But he's essentially making the case that when Jackie Robinson steals that base, he's not running this like cost-benefit analysis of, you know, he, he's not money-balling it and asking what's the risk versus the reward of stealing this base. Instead, he's sort of coming at it from this angle of, I'm a person who does gutsy things. This is a gutsy thing to do. I'm going to do it. Well, Dave, I think it's true because... We read it in a book. <laughs> <laughs>
On that subject of focusing more on identity, there are even studies that indicate that parenting can be more effective when it focuses on identity rather than on actions. So for instance, instead of telling your kids, don't lie, you say, don't be a liar. (laughs) And I'm I'm like, yeah, I'd I'd respond more to that too. (laughs) Because of this book, we've tried implementing this. Like if one of our boys does something rude to the other one, we'll say, don't do that you're not a mean person. Mm. And it's been effective. It's a nice way of injecting positivity into the aftermath of an argument. And now my nine-year-old wants to join a convent. (laughs) (laughs) All right, time for our random fact round. All the following people kept their day job until their creative career took off. Ava DuVernay, John Legend, T.S. Eliot, Scott Adams, Brian May from Queen, Stephen King, and Steve Wozniak. So it's Hmm. it's a pretty big list of very influential creators. Next, about half of the I Have a Dream speech was improvised, including the whole I Have a Dream section at the end. So partway through the speech, someone shouted, tell him about the dream. And we don't know if Martin heard them, but after that, Martin improvised that whole section, uh, which is incredible. Like, obviously, I mean, I think it's the best speech in history. Mm -hmm. But also, aren't you glad MLK is the rare person who's good at improv? (laughs) Like, what if he had just done, like, UCB level one, and he's like, okay, I need a word. Someone was like, dream, and he's like, okay, dream, dream. Got this. Oh, quick sidebar on that story. So the person who yelled, tell him about the dream, was the gospel singer Mahalia Jackson, And her singing the Lord's Prayer, starting at about the three-minute mark of the song, is one of the, like, most powerful things I've ever heard, if anyone's looking for just a great gospel hymn. Here's a fun fact. At one point, Thomas Edison held the record for the most patents, but he actually didn't, (laughs) because he just had a crew of hundreds of people, each of whom had to sign a contract stating that anything original they came up with that warranted a patent, Edison got to sign his name on it. And that's how they kept their jobs. Wow. Another one on the subject of being willing to give and receive feedback from anyone. One of the people at Warby Parker says, essentially, you may have a brilliant CEO, but your CEO isn't more brilliant than 200 employees. I mean, unless you're running one of those places where it's just kids making shoes. (laughs) (laughs) That you could probably bet you're smarter than them. (laughs) So I just have a fun quote from Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert. He says, Creativity is allowing yourself to make mistakes. Art is knowing which ones to keep. Mm. My parents have mastered creativity, but not art. (laughs) Okay, so our favorite lessons from originals. Number one, birth order may determine a lot about your personality. Two, Start from an unfamiliar place. Three, you don't know which of your ideas are good, so just make a lot of stuff. Four, originals often make decisions based on identity, not on consequences. And number five, Thomas Edison is currently burning in hell. (laughs) 